The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the show where we regularly tell Jeff Bezos to go fuck himself. Hey Jeff, go fuck yourself. I'm your host, David Sirota. Today we have a huge show for you. First, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Specifically, we're going to be discussing how in order to salvage his presidency and stave off rising fascism in the United States, Biden may need to go big with his policy proposals in the same way FDR did. FDR, of course, the Democrats' most popular president in their history. Will he take that advice? Only time will tell. Then I'll be speaking with Lucas Kuntz, who's running in a Democratic primary for a Senate seat in Missouri. Lucas's working class politics are the driving force behind his campaign. We talk about why Democrats have lost that swing state and what it would take to win swing states like that back to their party. Finally, the Levers interview with the president of the Amazon Labor Union, Chris Smalls. We spoke to Chris about his experience testifying before Congress, his hot labor summer tour, uh, his meeting with President Joe Biden, and the future of the Amazon Labor Union. We spoke with Chris for over a half hour, and we'll be sharing the entirety of our conversation. This week, our paid subscribers will also get to hear our bonus segment, an NCAA bracket-style matchup of the worst liberal hot takes in the media of all time. Trust me, they're even worse than you can possibly imagine. A reminder for our free listeners to head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to our premium podcast feed where you can get that bonus content, plus a whole lot more. As always, I am joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? How's it going, David? I'm actually feeling great today. We've got a great show. Uh, I'm really pumped to share our interview with Chris Smalls um, with everybody. Also, you and I get to go on vacation next week, which is I know. I know. really, really exciting for both of us. It is, and that's a programming note. Next week, we are not going to have a podcast. We'll be back the following week. Frank and I are actually taking uh, a break. The Lever staff, by the way, Way, is has been off the July 4th week. Frank and I kind of switched it up. We were on last week. We're going to be off next week. Um, I, I, and I'm psyched about it. I've already started my summer reading. I'm reading a book right now called Supreme Power, which is about FDR's fight with the Supreme Court back in the 1930s. It's both inspiring and it's making me really angry, actually. I, I'm, I'm usually full of um, bile and rage, and it's Weirdly, this book's experience is making me feel both happy and mad at the same time. I love how this is your like vacation pick. Like this is your like this is your like uh, my casual relaxation read. Like God, get FDR a copy like, versus the Supreme Court. I yeah, know. just like get I a know. copy of Eat, Pray, Love, David. My God, come on. I know, I know, but but you know the Supreme Court's been on my mind a lot, and I I I needed some reminder that playing dead in the face of extremists and being pathetic uh, and getting rolled over is not the way it has to go. So there's that inspiring story about 
FDR taking on the court uh, and actually winning. Uh, and then, of course, when you think about that, it just makes you um, extremely angry that the Democrats seem to be doing the opposite of what their most popular president in history uh, did now that the Democrats today are facing the same kind of extremism from uh, six Supreme Court justices. It, it, it really is incredible that this party never looks back to its most popular president and says, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should do stuff like that. It really does boggle the mind that there never is a, a look back uh, to that history. I'll never forget one of the few things I remember from like middle school history about the Great Depression and FDR was that like I remember my teacher saying something like like this dude came into office and did whatever the fuck he wanted. Obviously, she didn't say that. She, I was in middle school, but specifically, she was like he closed the banks. No, no, like, think about this. Like, he literally he declared a bank holiday so people couldn't go into the banks and take out their money and do these runs on the bank. Like, something that wasn't even within his power, technically, but he was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it because this is going to help. Well, the problem is, is that normie Dems like norms and they tend, tend to like norms more than they like outcomes. And so I, I, I submit to you this, that if FDR was around today... He would be vilified by MSNBC, Pod Save America, The Atlantic, The New York Times, the entire democratic media establishment that absolutely worships norms, that absolutely worships the television show West Wing, would be offended and appalled by Franklin Roosevelt and his tactics. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, using all of the power that he could use for his New Deal. And I want to be clear, I don't think FDR was perfect. He wasn't. He, he, there were a lot of things to criticize him about. I mean, the Japanese internment camps and, and the like, all of that was bad. But clearly, he was a person who was willing to actually use power. Clearly not a person who was uh, willing to worship norms and institutions, like, for instance, the Supreme Court, uh, when the Supreme Court was laying waste to the country. Uh, that is very different from today's Democrats who worship a religion that I call normalism. They just worship this idea of everything being, quote, normal, uh, everyone being nice to each other, manners, etiquette, uh, rules, uh, institutions. They worship all of that, even if those institutions and rules are laying waste to the entire society. This is a good segue to our first segment today our first segment about Joe Biden uh, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Though, and to be honest, those two names really shouldn't ever be mentioned in the same sentence. It's kind of embarrassing that, do you remember like back when Biden first got elected, there was all that punditry like Joe Biden's going to be the next FDR. I mean, do you remember that? Like, do you remember how insane that was? I, I did. And I, I, I thought someone was trying to claw my brains out through my eyeballs. Every time I saw that fucking scroll somewhere, I was like, this is <laughs> that, <laughs> insane. I had like the, the dry heaving reaction. Like I was like, like I, like it, it, I, felt like physically nauseous, but it kept coming up. Uh, and look, Joe Biden continues to claim that he is the most pro-union president uh, in American history. And 
I think that's <laughs> not, that's not, not just compared like in American history. Like right. he doesn't I, even I, say I, modern history. He I mean, says in in all of history right? ever that has ever existed. That's Dude, unbelievable. It it really is. I mean, it's truly the nice way of putting it. It's FDR erasure. Uh, it's and it's anyone with two brain cells who hasn't been lobotomized by cable TV news should hear that and immediately recognize that it's complete bullshit. I mean, Biden talks a big game. But as we all know, his actions speak louder than words. He's refused to reinstate rules requiring companies to disclose uh, spending to crush union drives. Uh, he really didn't make much of a push to pass the PRO Act, uh, which was the modern day equivalent of the Wagner Act that FDR did pass. Uh, he also gave a $10 billion federal contract to Amazon while Amazon was crushing uh, the union drive there. And we'll talk about that union drive later on uh, in this broadcast uh, with Chris Small who helped organize that union drive. Now, to help me break down what Joe Biden could do based on what FDR did do, we're going to talk to Harvey Kay and Bob Kuttner. Harvey is a historian, a professor, uh, and has written books about the history of FDR's legacy. Bob Kuttner is the journalist and co-founder of The American Prospect. I've been reading Bob Kuttner for really for decades. Uh, his new book is called Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and the Struggle to Save Democracy. And I just want to preface this conversation by saying there are a lot of lessons to learn from FDR. I'm not saying FDR is perfect, but I think it is fair to ask a very simple question. And this is the question I constantly ask. Because FDR was a successful president at a moment of crisis. And that question is this. What would FDR do? That's the question of this discussion. Bob, Harvey, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. A pleasure. So I want to start with uh, Bob Kuttner, your book about Joe Biden and FDR. And I want to ask the question to frame this conversation, which is a, a seemingly simple question with probably a complicated answer. Facing what we're facing now and what we know about what FDR did back then, what would FDR do right now if he were president and Joe Biden wasn't president? It's a good question. And of course, you have to add the caveat that, that Franklin Roosevelt had a massive working majority in Congress, leaving aside race. So uh, he had enough of a majority that when he decided to be more of a radical, he could get fairly radical stuff through Congress. Biden can't do that. So with that caveat, uh, there is a lot Biden can do. There's a lot that he's done. There's a lot more that he should be doing. Um, and of course, what Roosevelt did was to make it clear that you could not trust capitalism, unregulated capitalism, not to screw ordinary people. And so what he did was he regulated the financial system up, down and sideways. He used a huge amount of public investment to start the process of getting the economy out of the depression. And he empowered labor. Uh, a lot of the empowerment of labor was the result of labor organizing by radicals in the trenches. But by sponsoring the Wagner Act, Roosevelt made it possible for the state for the first time ever before or since to be on the side of organized labor. Now, Biden has done more modest versions of all three things. And um, most of the book, you know, is 
faulting the Democratic Party after Truman for moving away from the New Deal model, getting into bed with big business, trying to use cultural liberalism, if you will, to substitute for progressive economics and paving the road for Trump. Because if you're Hillary Clinton and you're in bed with Wall Street and you're also trying to be a feminist and a champion of transgender bathrooms and all the other good stuff that you only get to do if you are only delivering the goods economically, it's like an open invitation to Donald Trump. And that's what happened. Harvey, I want to turn to you and ask you uh, the uh, sort of opposite question, which is, it's about why it seems that a lot of today's Democrats, not all, but a lot in Congress, seem to have an aversion, if not to FDR specifically, then to the idea of returning to a kind of New Deal agenda. There was that quote, uh, I think it was about a year ago, where a conservative Democrat, Abby Spamberger from Virginia, uh, said something to the effect of, you know, people didn't elect Joe Biden uh, to be uh, FDR. They elected him uh, to essentially return us to normalcy. Uh, And it it kind of exuded a a hostility uh, to the idea of of reconnecting with the New Deal tradition, and I just want to know why you think there is that hostility, especially when FDR is in in the popular imagination the most popular, or at least one of the most popular presidents and successful presidents ever. Good well, I, I think Bob was onto something, but the thing he was onto, we should push a little further, and that is. The Democratic Party made a dramatic shift in the course of the 1970s. And in fact, uh, one of the principal movers of the Democratic Party in the 70s, Gary Hart, ran, well, he ran campaigns out of Colorado, your state, which came to be titled the end of the New Deal. He basically, essentially within the party, declared war on the New Deal tradition, as well as on, on the labor movement himself. But but I want to add to that. I want to just add something that that Robert was referring to. When FDR was running for president in 32, he really seriously impressed both John Lewis, the head of the mine workers, who was a Republican, and Sidney Hillman, the head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, who was a socialist, that he would be the best president for labor. And it literally in the first hundred days, though later they had to go back and create the National Labor Relations Act in the National Industrial Recovery Act. They signed into law what they believed was the empowerment of labor. That was in 1933 in the first hundred days. And millions of workers sought to organize. Now, companies found their way around it by creating company unions. But the fact is that FDR very quickly, immediately garnered the support of working people. And and now to go back to your to your question, it is astounding to me that is as remarkable as the American Rescue Plan is now in light of the, the next year and a half that that Biden, everyone started calling Biden, the, you know, the best, you know, the best for labor since FDR. And, and look, he made a few nice remarks. He stated matters of fact. Workers do have the right to organize. He pointed that out, but he didn't take the necessary steps that FDR did. In the course of the first few years, FDR literally mobilized his cabinet to go out and rally working class women and eventually it became a housewives movement. It's a really radical difference between the two. Well, let me turn Bob, that's a good segue to the next question I have for you, which is about norms. I feel like Joe Biden, um, uh, above all, honors, respects, reveres norms. 
and that FDR in his time did not uh, at least revere norms in the same way. I mean, FDR gave a speech saying, I, I literally welcome the hatred of rich people. Uh, he he had all sorts of fights with the Supreme Court, essentially with the institutions. He did things like Harvey just described, uh, having his cabinet try to mobilize people. Uh, I feel like um, that Joe Biden uh, is, is, if not afraid of those things, is averse to those kinds of FDR-like tactics. I wonder if you agree, and I wonder if, if you have any explanation for, for why. Why is that? So Joe Biden, you know, we all know who Joe Biden is, right? He's a fairly traditional uh, liberal Democrat. I certainly wouldn't call him a progressive Democrat. And as you know better than anybody, David, the wrong guy got nominated. And um, what you have is the is the soul of uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the persona of Joe Biden. And it's it, 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 if the two of them hadn't been in the race, one of them would have been nominated and probably would have won. And so you've got this kind of tug of war between the undertow of the Clinton, Carter, Obama Democrats and the more progressive Democrats, some of whom actually are playing an influential role in government. And um, Larry Summers, thank God, is on the outside looking in, or as Lyndon Johnson would, would have said, pissing in. And um, this is good, but it doesn't mean that, that, that Joe Biden is the second coming of Franklin Roosevelt. It does mean that we have an opening to the left. And what I do, and I know what you do, and what the American prospect does, is we compliment Biden when he or his people does something good and we push on him when he does something bad. So, I mean, my last two columns have been trashing Pete Buttigieg for not getting out in front of the airline mess when he has the power to investigate the airlines for violating the, the spirit of the bailout that they got $60 billion and not staffing up so that they don't have enough staff to service the flights they've scheduled and they have to have last minute cancellations. There are going to be thousands of them on the 4th of July weekend. So, you know, he's certainly better than Obama or Clinton or God forbid Carter, but he doesn't have a working majority. And then there's the, the, the question you posed. Why is it that many Democrats in Congress um, are trashing the New Deal? I think the answer is they make a fatal mistake. They they conflate different kinds of centrism. And what, what working people are looking for is a more radical message, not a more centrist message. We can argue about some of the cultural issues. That's a separate conversation. But I've always felt that if you wanna go left on cultural issues, you have to start out by going way left on economic issues so that working people feel that they have your back. And Biden has sort of taken some baby steps in that direction. He could be doing a lot more. And, and I think it actually speaks to what the Democratic Party thinks is the target swing voter. I mean, it's a subject maybe for another discussion, but I think that the Democratic leaders, uh, uh, the political apparatus thinks that the target swing voter is kind of an affluent suburbanite and not necessarily a working class person. But I also want to talk about uh, the anger that you mentioned, the frustration that people feel. Harvey, I want to ask you this question about um, people's feeling of discontent right now with the Democratic Party uh, and the uh, arguably somewhat apocryphal story, uh, uh, but at least a story in spirit about FDR and the make me do it spirit. That It's my view that 
anger at the Democratic Party, uh, not right-wing anger, but kind of progressive uh, frustration, anger at the Democratic Party, has helped produce what we think of when we think of the great things the Democratic Party produced. Uh, for instance, Social Security, uh, union rights, and during the, the New Deal, Medicare, Medicaid, and the like. I just, if you can tell us a little bit about the kind of pressure that FDR faced, that he wasn't just a guy who woke up in the morning and decided to do the New Deal, that he was under a lot of pressure, and maybe relate it to what that lesson is for the Democratic Party right now and for rank and file Democratic voters who want more from their party. You know, let's start out with the, let's start out like 1932. So it's the great the Great Depression is well underway and you know, banks are collapsing. Um, and there was serious talk ranging from the American the head of the American Political Science Association all the way over to Vanity Fair, projecting the possibility of a Mussolini like figure who might take charge in America. The American Political Science Association professor actually said, um, who knows, I think we could soon end up maybe with fascism or communism. And he was convinced there was going to be one way or the other because of the kinds of insurgencies that he was witnessing. Um, the, the veterans march, the bonus marchers, that is the veterans of World War I who had who knew they were going to get a bonus if they could hold on until 1945. Uh, who knew there would be another set of veterans to worry about. But, you know, so and they they were impoverished. And from all over the country in their tens of thousands, they came to Washington and they occupied Washington. They did not try to invade the Capitol. OK, but they occupied the Capitol, uh, you know, the D.C. and and Hoover and uh, MacArthur, General MacArthur, who was in charge of surrounding the camp and containing it and his lieutenants, who I believe were Patton and Eisenhower, they let loose on those marchers. Now, FDR knew he, he, he knew the kinds of mistakes that were taking place, he was very well aware of it. And let's not forget, he was already governor of New York. He was already experimenting with the kinds of initiatives that he would pursue in the New Deal. So he knew, but he also knew quite well that there was this kind of pressure. I want to make something clear. I think he indeed welcomed the pressure, not necessarily violent upheavals, but he definitely welcomed the pressure. And that story that, that everyone knows, you know, make me do it is is indicative. And it was and people could misinterpret. It wasn't make me do it. Make me capable of doing it because he knew the kinds of changes that he might pursue would not necessarily fly in Congress, despite the hold that the Democrats had on Congress. Let's not forget the chairs of the committees were Southern white supremacist Democrats. And anytime they smelled the possibility of some kind of move towards segregation, they pounced on the law and literally transformed it. Thus, the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act both excluded agricultural workers and household workers. But it's also the case. Look, I said the 1970s, the anger that people feel today is decades upon decades of anger. Now, understand, with all due respect to people who live on the East and West Coast, where I grew up, it is the case that out here in the Midwest, people have been angry for years. And it goes back to NAFTA and related kinds of things. Now, the Republicans didn't go after NAFTA, but they went they created the culture wars that would literally challenge the anger that prevailed. I mean, colloquial. this is a, you know, this is not colloquial. This is a local experience I had. Students of mine would tell me, this is back in 2016, that if that their parents 
were eager to vote for Bernie. But in the absence of Bernie, they were going to vote for Trump. And why? Because as the poll, there was a poll that was conducted in the course of 2015 asking Americans, what kind of change do you wish to see? This is out of the New York Times, this story. And the answer in the majority was radical change. So the anger was built up over a great deal of time. And I can tell you right now, the anger is building once again. David, go ahead, Bob. The huge mistake that Biden makes, it seems to me, and this is an area where, you know, you don't need 50 votes in the Senate. Um, Yes, the anger is not about $5 gasoline. The anger is about 40 years of declining living standards. Yeah, right. And um, and Biden could be tapping that deeper anger by naming who is responsible for it, namely big multilateral national corporations, Wall Street banks, oil companies. And he could be adopting a much more progressive populist stance against all of this stuff all of these enemies siding with ordinary working people and saying, give us the votes to transform the situation so that we can pass legislation uh, constraining the power of the banks and the multinational corporations and the oil companies. And uh, Stan Greenberg actually did some really interesting focus group research making the following point, that it's, it's natural for Biden to wanna claim credit for some of the things that he did. So Biden will say things like, well, unemployment is down and people don't want to hear how good things are because they know that in their life experience, things are terrible. And so if Biden is telling them how good things are, that only discredits Biden. Well, well, and here's and, and I think you touch on a really important point that, that FDR, it seemed to me, did not have a, a, any trouble or hesitation in saying who the villains and the enemies and the bad guys were. And that Joe Biden, uh, at least personally, but I also think it's the Democratic Party culture, doesn't necessarily, today's Democratic Party culture, doesn't necessarily like calling out uh, the villains. Uh, But I think that clearly this aversion to calling out the the bad guys is part of the problem here for Biden and 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 distinguishes him in a bad way uh, from FDR. I, I want to ask a, one last question here about a cautionary tale that comes out of FDR. Because if we're talking about what would FDR do, uh, Bob, why don't you tell us what happened in 1938? with the so-called Roosevelt recession. And if you can, I think the context for it is, is the fear that if Joe Biden loses the midterms, uh, he will pivot to the old Joe Biden, the Joe Biden who has fetishized working with Republicans uh, on a kind of austerity policies to cut things like Social Security and Medicare. Well, what happened in 1938 was that Roosevelt paid attention to his fiscally conservative advisors who started saying, whoops, these deficits are getting out of hand. And you know, the deficits in those years were four or 5% of GDP, they were not huge. It wasn't until World War II that we got deficits that were 25% of GDP. And unemployment is still 16, 17, 18%, depending on whether you count people who were employed in public works projects. So we are only about halfway out of the Great Depression, if that. And uh, he listens to his fiscally conservative advisors and we get, the Roosevelt recession and um, the the industries where uh, the radical trade unions had made some real headway 
start losing jobs and losing members, which is a setback for the labor movement. And so in the midterm of 38, uh, the Democrats lose a whole bunch of seats. Now, if you if you fast forward to the current midterm, um, I'm guessing that the Democrats lose the House, but they hold the Senate. If you do the Senate race by race, the Senate's actually looking pretty good. And that means Biden can still get confirmations, you know, nominees confirmed by the Senate. And I, you know, whether whether Biden would try to triangulate with the Republicans. I don't think he would, because there are damn few issues on which the Republicans even want to work with Biden. I think the, the, the system is so polarized and most Republicans are so crazy that it, it's it's hard to imagine a kind of um, 1995, 1996 scenario where Biden triangulates a la Clinton. Well, I worry I worry about the 2010-2011 scenario, the the Bowles Simpson uh, situation that Biden was involved in. I mean, I I mean, I, I hope that's not the case, but I, I I sort of know too much about Joe Biden, right? I, I I know or too much about the old Joe Biden. I don't know if the old Joe Biden is the new Joe Biden. I think he'd get a tremendous amount of pushback. You were you were talking about the, the Democrats. I mean, don't forget, you got you got the House Progressive Caucus, which is about a hundred people. You've got um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, so Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, you've got some interesting divisions within the Democrats. And I I don't think it's analogous to 96. I certainly hope it isn't. <laughs> Harvey, uh, I'll leave you with the with the last word. What do you think? I mean, do you do you think yeah, I'm worried about the 2010 scenario? Yeah, I, yeah. I really am. Because keep in mind that it, it's quite possible. I got a call yesterday from my state assembly person who's very progressive. And one in two, just one back in uh, 2020. And she was saying that the Supreme Court decision on Roe and on guns is giving the Republicans real energy here in Wisconsin. And that might well be the case across the central part of the country. And as a consequence, we could lose even more seats in state legislatures. And then on top of that, I mean, I'm haunted by I could tell a story which I won't bother. I'm haunted by 94. I'm haunted by 2010. And it was in 2011 that fortunately the Republicans so despised Obama that they didn't take up his offer when he said he's willing to put everything on the table. You've got to imagine how much they hated him, that he would they wouldn't get, take their own deal. Well, I worry about that. Harvey K. Bob Kuttner, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We really thank appreciate you. it. And uh, uh, we really wish that Joe Biden would be FDR, but uh, I, I think he's a little bit less. And than I that. wish that you would buy the book, all you good people. <laughs> I, I bought it. I read it. It's I a great it, book. I read it, yeah. It's a great book. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we're going to my interview with Lucas Kuntz. Lucas is running in a Democratic primary for a U.S. Senate seat in Missouri. The Democrats wildly fucked up that state. It used to be a swing state. Now it is a very deep red state. Lucas is trying to turn that around. Lucas is positioning himself as the progressive against his primary opponent, Trudy Bush Valentine, who is quite literally the heiress oligarch to the Anheuser-Busch fortune now running in the Democratic primary. If Lucas wins the primary, he'll likely face Republican Eric Greitens, who recently made national headlines by releasing one of the most unhinged and insanely extremist campaign ads in all of American political history. I spoke with Lucas about his working class roots, his plan for Missouri, how he's running as a very different kind of Democrat, and how he thinks that will help him win in a state that the Republicans took over. 
Hey, Lucas, how you doing? Hey, good, David. Thanks for having me, man. For sure. So before we get into the specific Senate race that you're running in, uh, a little bit, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a different kind of candidate. You have a little bit of a different kind of background. Uh, who are you? Why did you decide to run uh, for the U.S. Senate uh, to be in, in an institution where uh, very good politicians often go to die? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that's quite a way to put it, huh? So so I'm a, you know, I, I guess I'm just a normal dude, right? Like I grew up in Jeff City, working class neighborhood. It's a middle sized town in the center of, of the state of Missouri. Uh, Jeff City is. And, you know, my, my parents are like a lot of Missourians. They got married at 19 and 22. They had four kids real quick. You know, I remember going to the grocery store um, for a very long time and watching my mom or dad write the check and just beg the cashier not to cash it till the end of, month, end of the month so we could make it. And, uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing, though, is like this was a local grocery store. It was the corner grocery store and they would do that for us. They did it for everybody in the neighborhood. And uh, for me, you know, it just it's part of that magical life that, that uh, we used to have here. And so, you know, I don't think. At the time, I realized how great things were, uh, but when my littlest sister was born, she had to have an open heart surgery. And and I'm telling you right now, like when you're paycheck to paycheck in America and any sort of disaster strikes, right? Like car accident uh, or even just a car breakdown, a health emergency, which is what we had uh, or anything else, you know, a little flood in your basement, who knows what, uh, like that's it, right? You can't recover from it. And so when we went bankrupt from the medical bills associated with that and, uh, and frankly, like this is why I'm running. The people in that neighborhood who had no more money than we had, you know, they came together for us. They passed the plate down at my mom's prayer group so that she could like literally go to the store and buy the things that we needed to make it. And they brought more tuna casserole by our house than we could ever eat. And I mean, I remember sitting in my living room being like, oh God, please let it be lasagna tonight. But like, this is a great way that people take care of each other. And, and the reason I'm running is because that is not how the political class in this country has been taking care of people. They take money from the wrong folks. They take money from people who literally strip our communities for parts. They strip communities like the one I grew up in, Jeff City, for parts. And I've seen that. Like, like the first house I lived in now is an empty lot. It fell apart. It's been bulldozed down. The one I joined the Marine Corps out of, which I'll get to in a second, is boarded up. It's got graffiti on it. The corner store is gone. And so for me, like I, I joined the Marine Corps. Um, as an adult because of what that community did for me, the way everybody took care of me. So I joined the Marine Corps. I watched, I went to Iraq. I went to Afghanistan twice. You know, I led a police training team in Iraq. I um, dodged an IEDs, trying to train the Iraqi police, bring everybody home safe. I learned Pashto, went to Afghanistan twice, um, you know, doing doing that country too. And frankly, watching, our, watching us spend $6.4 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan and my old neighborhood fall apart and every chance that there's an opportunity to invest here in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods, and the people that I signed up to serve, uh, the political class has no interest in doing it uh, because there's not a good counterbalance against them. So I, I decided to run a race without taking money from corporate PACs, no federal lobbyists, no fossil fuel executives, no big pharma executives and do things totally different and try to win here. Uh, well, let me let me ask you about about Missouri because because that was my next question, which is that Missouri used to be a considered a, a very swing state, arguably the swingiest of swing states, uh, and now it is considered a Republican leaning or maybe simply just a Republican state. What do you think went wrong? Because I can remember back, what was it? Uh, 
must be now 20 years ago, but you, you had uh, uh, Mel Carnahan, you had, uh, and frankly, they, they it, Missouri produced a lot of uh, more uh, uh, conservative Democrats, and we can get into that. But what do you think happened to a Democratic Party, a Democratic brand in a state that was once considered a swing state, and now is considered a pretty serious red state? Democrats took money from the wrong people and they made decisions for them and they told everybody it was good for them when it wasn't good for them and now by, nobody trusts them anymore. I get that over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, I can give you two, I can give you two pretty good examples. Please. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and it wasn't even that long. Like Obama only lost Missouri in 2008 by a couple thousand votes and that was without significant investment here. I mean, people were we're very much open to that sort of message and, and ideas. We had all statewide Democrats pretty much through 2016, which was you know six years ago, and uh, and we lost that because you know I, I'm going to give you the story of my dad, and I give you this story because this is very similar to what happened to people all across Missouri. And so, you know, my dad did everything he was told his entire life. He he did what the what he believed in the institutions, and he did what he was supposed to do. Right? He he had four kids for the Catholic Church. He got married when he was young. Uh, he stayed at the same job his entire life, and then when he when he retired, uh, my little sister who had the heart surgery, she's still disabled. She lives with him. He takes care of her, and so he had to get another job, right? Because this is working class America, and like in everyday America, you can't just like take care of a family member and survive without being employed. And so he, uh, you know, he starts looking for a job, and this is right after Democrats bailed out Wall Street, and uh, and we're telling. Everybody and their mother that they saved the economy, right? We saved the economy. Numbers are up. Things are booming. Everything's great. And that was true in some parts of the country. It was not true in Missouri, though. And so uh, if you look at the chart for that time, like Missouri's recovery is flat while everyone else goes up. And so my dad's looking for a job, tries to find a job in that area so hard, can't ever get one, expands his search to the whole state, can't get one, finally gets a headhunter. He keeps looking around and they send him across the entire country, right over Missouri to Maryland, and he finally gets a permanent job there. He has to move my sister, again, disabled, from the only town she has ever known, and the one thing he needs to do in order to survive is to sell his house. And this is when Democrats nationwide were talking about how they'd save the housing market, right? Like, oh, these wall these bailouts we did, you know, the first they saved the economy, now the housing market's booming, everything is recovered. Our house in Jeff City, Missouri sat on the market for two years, and he got $43,000 that he owed 70-something on. And so when you get told over and over again, this is good for you, this is good for our economy, this is good for everybody, and the people here are suffering, like, they run out of steam eventually, right? And right, they but, just here's decide- the, but here's the question to push back on that, and I, I obviously agree with that analysis, that the Democratic Party has made big promises, uh, and... M- in, in a material sense, people don't feel that those promises have come true. Uh, and in a lot of ways, they have not even – the Democratic Party has not even tried to, to deliver on those promises. But here's the question that I always come back to, which is why do you think then that lots of voters who experience that then reward the Republicans – who are not proposing to make anything better at all. They're actually arguably making the situation far worse. Why why does it revert to, you know, okay, we're justifiably sick of the Democrats not delivering. So we're going to go vote for like the biggest monsters on the planet. Well, first of all, Democrats did deliver. 
They delivered for Wall Street banks. They delivered well, sure. for the <laughs> Sure. So, so, and people saw that success. So it's not just that they saw an absence of delivering. They saw real delivering, and they saw it for other people. And, uh, and, and so that's one part of that. Um, again, like my dad got moved to the coast. He saw the jobs there. Like, like it's not like he didn't see an economic recovery. It just wasn't in his home. And, uh, and the other thing on that is uh, when you have distrust for the institutions, the party that believes in the institutions is at a serious disadvantage. And I believe in the institutions, that's a good point. right? That's a good point. I want to build them up, but that puts you at a huge loss. And so when people don't trust the institutions and you got, you know, people like Donald Trump and uh, and Josh Hawley talking about how corrupt the situation this institutions are, how they don't work for you, like that resonates with folks. While Democrats are still trying to sell, well, no, no, like really, this institution will work. In other words, the Democratic Party is 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 sort of doing both things. They have two problems. They're showing the institutions not working, and then also they are seen as the party defending the institutions that don't work. And so the votes revert to the Republicans because at least the Republicans are promising rhetorically to burn everything down. And that's where, where we are. So then the question becomes, how are you running uh, a different kind of race, knowing that the National Democratic Party brand uh, is almost certainly going to be uh, a, a, an anchor uh, in a lot of ways in a general election. Uh, what do you think you have to do differently to kind of, I guess, unshackle yourself uh, from a National Democratic Party brand that is branded as a protector of failed institutions? So we got to bring the party back to its roots, which is workers. It's about being a warrior for workers. It's about go it's about delivering for workers. It is about fundamentally changing who has power in this country. Uh, because right now, like whether you're talking to a Democrat, Republican, independent across Missouri and which is the only state I can speak for, it's the only one I know. But like everyone feels like no matter who they vote for, they don't have any power. And so, you know, blowing things up is a great solution or voting on a single issue. That's the only thing left to them. They feel like is is the solution. And so I can give you another good example on this. That's very, very Missouri. Uh, and so uh, in Missouri. Now, most people don't know this, but we used to have the, the single highest number of independent hog farmers of any state in the entire country. So it was right here in Missouri. It was a stalwart of the economy. These guys, you know, they bought all their feed locally. They bought their equipment locally. All this wealth from the land stayed local because the supply chain was local. And all these small towns, you know, they, th they actually thrived. Like they did really well and they were solid. And in just one generation, monopoly companies have come in and just big ag absolutely annihilated them. And they did it by violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. They did it by violating the Packers and Stockyards Act. They did it by taking advantage of the institutions that we defend, right? And corporate judges just protecting them left and right. And I'm telling you, these farmers know this. They know antitrust like most people don't know. They know what monopoly power is. But, uh, but this is the type of lack of trust in the institution that turns people into single issue voters, that turns people into, oh, okay, you, t you want me to have faith and believe in this? Like, give me a break. No, I think you've really put your, your, your finger on it, which is that the Democrats, it's not a viable political strategy. It's also immoral, but it's certainly not a viable political strategy to manipulate or let institutions be manipulated by your big donors and then also politically brand yourself 
as the defender uh, of those same institutions. That is a, a politically unsustainable. That's how you get take a purple state of Missouri and turn it into, at least up until now, a red state. So let's talk about your election. First, you're in a, in a Democratic primary. It's on August 2nd. Your main opponent in that race is Trudy Bush Valentine, who is the literal heiress to the Anheuser-Busch empire. Um, and I'm sure it wouldn't surprise any of our listeners to find out that she has uh, the support of a lot of the establishment Democrats in Missouri, such as the Democratic establishment is in Missouri, a place where the Democrats have been largely wiped out. What's the biggest contrast between you and your primary opponent? And do you sense that people, that Democratic primary voters are keying into those differences? Absolutely. So, so our, the biggest difference is who I am, how I grew up, and my lifetime of service. My ability to, to draw in Republicans, my ability to draw in independents, my ability uh, to actually be heard when I go to an, into a room as a 13-year Marine veteran who wants to fundamentally change who has power in this country. And, uh, and so I come from a place of like trust because this is me, like I live like Missourians live. And, uh, and, I, and I always have, and I still like, like when my mom got cancer a few years ago, like we don't have any family money and she was working an hourly job. She couldn't sustain that. She couldn't sustain a place to live. So she had to move in with me for a little while. Like, like these are the types of things uh, that everyday people understand and that's who they want representing them. And so we've run a very, very grassroots campaign um, you know, I mentioned earlier all the people who I thought were stripping our communities for parts. So I don't take money from, you know, big pharma executives, big fossil fuel executives, federal lobbyists, corporate PACs, none of that. And yet, uh, you know, the Democratic establishment told me, you'll never raise any money. We love your bio, but you're not a valid candidate if you, if you, if you want to run a campaign that way. And my response is, I want us to win here again. I want to, and the only way we do that is by standing for something real. And so we ran our campaign our way anyway. We've actually raised, as of last quarter, three and a half million dollars, which was more than anybody in this race, more than any of the Republicans even. And we did that by having a real message. Um, you know, we got support from every county in the state and the city of St. Louis. We are really building a true grassroots campaign where I can go to the inner city and I'll get a huge crowd, or I can go to like St. Joe, Missouri, and get more than a hundred, like a hundred people out to to come to a rally. And like, ain't nobody done that in St. Joe, Missouri, on the Democratic side since Jerry Litton in the 1970s. Like. It's a very big deal to actually stand for something, to live like normal people live, and to come from that world uh, with, a, with a lifetime of service. So, uh, you know, I'm really proud of that. Other things we run on is, uh, you know, uh, well, I mentioned this earlier, bringing the party back to its roots. So working people, being a warrior for working people, uh, you know, nuking the filibuster to codify Roe. Uh, versus, you know, codify Roe, pass the PRO Act, uh, actually invest in Missouri. Uh, we talk a lot about offshoring and how we need to invest in uh, in reshoring and building out jobs here again. Lucas, on the question of, of abortion, um, you, in the past, uh, you had been um, anti-choice uh, uh, and you are now pro-choice. Uh, I think you've said you would vote to codify Roe v. Wade. Um, it, tell us a little bit about how you evolved on that issue and where you are now. Absolutely. So I'm 100% pro-choice. I think all women should have access to abortion uh, and the full spectrum of reproductive rights. Uh, I actually think we should get rid of the filibuster to codify Roe versus Wade. And so, you know, in the past, um, I was I grew up in a pro-life home, right? I grew up in a pro-life neighborhood. Uh, it's the way we all were. And then, you know, I joined the Marine Corps. I went overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. 
I saw what it was like to live under a big brother government where people don't have rights, women especially, or second-class citizens. I saw people who were close to me go through very, very difficult pregnancies. Uh, and just the idea that people should have to go through a pregnancy that they don't want to have anymore is just, it's abhorrent to me. And so I, uh, I absolutely am pro-choice now. And I think that, like I said, we need to get rid of the filibuster in order to codify Roe versus Wade. So essentially your life experience is what accounts for a, a shift on the issue. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I was a kid then. I didn't know anything other than what I was taught growing up in the house. And uh, now I've been out. I've seen I've seen the real world. And uh, and I realized that we truly need this right. Yeah. And I and listen, I, I to be clear, I appreciate when people just acknowledge, you know, I mean, and, and nobody has everything right their entire lives. Right. I mean, there is a space for people to uh, learn more about the world and change their positions, especially from being a young a young person. So let me ask you one final question, and and I want to play a clip from an ad that Eric Greitens, the former Missouri Republican governor who is now running in this race to try to win the Republican nomination, this ad that he aired about, uh, I guess, moderate Republicans. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, and today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Lucas, I want to ask you uh, about the, the general election. Uh, if you win the nomination, you will. there's a good chance you will face Eric Reitens in, in the general election. Um, that is one of the most extremist ads that uh, I've ever seen. And I've been working in and around politics for 25 years at this point. Uh, a, a guy who's literally promising to hunt down uh, people he disagrees with. And there's, you know, if, for folks who can't see it, there's imagery of weaponry and the like in the, in the ad. What do you think that ad says about the state of, I guess, Republican politics in Missouri, uh, Republican politics nationally? What do you think the deeper meaning of that ad really is? What do you think voters should take from it? Yeah, I don't mean I don't think there is deep meaning like the what we have on the other side in many cases is criminals, you know, and the, and the rest are charlatans. And so like Eric Greitens, I mean, this guy doing that ad, he's just showing his true colors. I mean, he is a criminal. He assaulted someone in his basement. He stole from his veterans charity. And the only reason he's not convicted is because he was a politician in power and was able to make a deal where he could resign instead of being prosecuted. Like that, what a double standard is that, right? But that's the double standard we have in America right now. I mean, if I go to the U.S. Senate, I'm going to end that double standard right away. I think that that's a tragedy. And, uh, and the thing is, and this is the twisted part about it, and this is what it says about American politics, is that guy's funded by two billionaires. Uh, the Home Depot CEO and this Richard Orlein guy who's like a packing magnate or something like like That's it. He's got a super pack. He's funded by, by two billionaires. And they see his criminality as a feature. Like they see that as a positive thing because they know that this guy will do absolutely anything for the power or the prestige or the glory or whatever the hell it is that he thinks he can get out of running for office and winning. And they know he will do literally everything to include stripping our communities for parts if it means that Eric Greitens gets what Eric Greitens wants. And so, I mean, that's what we're up against. We are up against uh, billionaires who fund criminals to strip our communities for parts, period. I, I certainly agree. And I, I, I think it exudes uh, 
a kind of open fascism. I mean, I, I, that, and those are my words, not yours, but I think it is a kind of open form normalization of fascism. And I think you put it exactly right. That capital, big C capital, money is with that side. And that's, I think, what the stakes are in a lot of these elections. Lucas, thank you so much for taking the time today. And thank you for running the race that you're running. Good luck with it. Thanks, David. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our interview with the president of the Amazon Labor Union, Chris Smalls. All right, look, if you're listening to this show, you know Soft when you see it. Soft is a Democratic House member pledging to be for a $15 minimum wage and then immediately backing down. Soft is a Democratic senator pledging to tax billionaires and then betraying the promise. Soft is Joe Biden saying he supports unions and then backing down to lobbyists. But even the Democrats in Washington aren't as soft as Sheets and Giggles eucalyptus sheets. Sheets and Giggles should be the place you get your sheets because they're awesome. They're unlike anything you've ever tried. They're naturally softer than even the best cotton and they're temperature regulating. They keep hot sleepers cool and cold sleepers warm even in the same bed. This is particularly important in places like where I live, Colorado and where the temperature fluctuates all over the place. The cool thing is that Colin, the founder of Sheets and Giggles, is mission-driven. He's a guy right here in my hometown of Denver who's been a longtime reader of the Levers journalism. He's been pushing Colorado to enact a public health insurance option. And he's making sure Sheets and Giggles products are made sustainably and ship in zero plastic packaging. Let me give you an example. Their sheets use 96% less water than cotton. 30% less energy than cotton to make them. For comparison, a single set of polyester sheets can leach 10 million microplastic fibers into the waterways every year, just through the laundry. So look, if you want to support a business that supports our journalism and is values-driven, Sheets and Giggles is for you. Go to sheetsgiggles.com slash lever. That's sheetsgiggles.com slash lever for a 15% discount and get yourself set up today. Their sheets are softer than the Biden administration, and you're helping support a great company that's making our journalism possible. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our final segment today, we're gonna be sharing our interview with the man who gave the biggest of big middle fingers to the person who deserved it. Jeff Bezos. We're talking to Chris Smalls, the president of the newly formed Amazon Labor Union, which was the first in the country to successfully win a union drive at an Amazon warehouse. Chris has found himself at the center of the new American labor movement, largely in part to his 21st century style, attitude, and tactics, as well as his deep roots in the working class. Myself, the levers Matthew Cunningham Cook and producer Frank sat down with Chris to talk about his trip to DC, his meeting with President Biden, his so-called hot labor summer tour, and the future of the Amazon labor union. Just a heads up, we recorded this a few weeks ago before the Amazon labor Union's organizing efforts in Albany and Kentucky. It was a great conversation with a lot of insight about what the next steps are for the labor movement. Here it is. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Chris, I want to start out with um, 
what's been going on in the last month, last couple of weeks. Uh, you've been on a national organizing tour, uh, visiting Amazon workers across the country, talking about your experience with the ALU uh, in New York. Uh, whose idea was the tour and what kind of feedback are you getting? What, what are workers telling you across the country? Oh, it, it actually wasn't nobody's idea. You know, I kind of like uh, just came up with it as I was being booked to travel to different cities and states. I figured, you know, um, why not make it a tour? You know, I'm being booked uh, a month in advance um, to, you know, go to different locations and different union conventions and speak to different workers in different industries. So I just came up with this whole, uh, you know, hot labor summer tour uh, hashtag. And it kind of like um, it just took off. You know, people started to gravitate towards it. And I just kind of ran with it. And, uh, you know, I talked to my union about it. And um, we pretty much say, you know what, um, you know, if I'm going to be traveling and, you know, connecting with workers, I might as well, you know, make something out of it that's going to help uh, spread the awareness to our cause. What, what are the what what are you hearing from workers? Oh, well, it's definitely ins- inspirational for them. You know, um, you know, the way we organize, the way um, the uniqueness of our campaign, the uniqueness of our union. Um, the fact that, you know, we're so just non- non-traditional compared to other established unions. Um, I think the younger generation and uh, I guess you want to call them the Gen Z's, um, um, they love us, you know, and they love our style. They love, you know, what they what they call our, you know, union drip, uh, whatever they, they like about us and our characters. Um, it seems to resonate. And I'm just trying to... Um, you know, do the best I can to keep that conversation, uh, you know, in, in different spaces and, and get it to different platforms that, you know, usually we don't talk about labor on. Yeah. And al- along those lines, you know, so you were just at this Labor Notes uh, conference in Chicago and, and you're there with, you know, you're, you're the star along with Sean O'Brien uh, from the Teamsters and Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants, much more established unions what what is it like kind of being in the room with the other two of them of you kind of this up and coming guy these other two much more established uh people yeah how 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 do the the three of you kind of interact well yeah um i talk to sarah all the time um more so than sean um but everybody i met so far um it's been pretty um receptive and pretty cool and um you know we uh we definitely uh, support one another um, you know, me and Sean, we went to the Senate together. Um, you know, I've been to the Teamsters Marble Palace, had a tour. So we have um, a really good relationship. You know, um, I have relatives that are still Teamsters. Um, and with Sarah, Sarah just, um, she's been a comrade for a few years, um, always been supportive from the beginning, even before we even won. So um, to ha- to actually meet her in person and now to see her in different, you know, um, events, um, we just once again supporting each other through and through. We know that um, collectively we have to all take on um, Amazon. That makes me so happy to hear that you have like this already built in solidarity and camaraderie with the other unions. That's like really that makes me very hopeful. Um Chris, I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm sure you've been getting this a lot, but you showing up to the White House in an Eat the Rich bomber jacket—that was like 
that was legitimately like one of the most transgressive political statements that I have seen in a long, that I think any of us have seen in a long time. So first of all, thank you for, for doing that. No um, yeah, I'm curious what your experience was like there at the White House and in Congress that day, because like you said a lot of really powerful things. Like, do you feel like people were hearing you or do you feel like the people in D.C. were just like giving you lip service? <laughs> at the moment, you know, um, I did not know that day what happened the way it did at all. Um, you know, this is who I am as a person every single day the way I dress, the way I talk. So like for me, it was just normal. And then it wasn't until the aftermath when I realized like, wow, how viral this one day just all the, all, all, of, all of a sudden went. And I'm like, wow. Um, I think the difference is that number one, I'm not a politician, you know, number two, I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just the fact that, um, you know, me, you know, speaking up for workers the way I do, uh, the demonstrations I've been involved with, you know, I was just outside. I think I told them I was like, I was outside this White House protested last year. So um, for them to to let me in and, um, you know, allow me to meet the president and all of that, um, it definitely was uh, quite an experience. And, um, you know, eat the rich, the jacket, you know, everybody thinks it's like custom made. I'm like, no, if you stop shopping online and stop shopping at Amazon, and go right to your local mall. You find the jacket just right there on the racks. It's fifty dollars. Anybody could be, anybody can wear that jacket. You know that's where I found it at the mall. Um, so it's just amazing how just certain things that I say and do or wear just take off. Um, definitely wasn't expected at all. Um, but I think um, the moment is necessary. You know, we we want to shake things up. We want to. Um, we want to make politicians feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I had to remind Lindsey Graham that day that, you know, once again, I'm not no politician. You're not going to talk to us like we don't exist. I'm in the room with my my union, with workers behind me, and I'm representing them. And um, I just had to speak, you know, truth to power. And that came straight from, you know, the heart. I mean, you really you really spoke truth to an asshole. And, and I really appreciate like you keeping calm because Lindsey Graham is tr truly one of the great assholes, not a, not just of our day, one of the great assholes of, of American history, I think. I think that's a fair and honest statement. Uh, I want to go back to the to the experience you had at, at the White House. Um, um, you met with President Biden and, and his rhetoric has been about Amazon uh, of late has been very good. You know, he said he, he's sort of rhetorically stands in solidarity. But his administration, uh, for instance, gave Amazon a $10 billion contract to the company right it was, as it was trying to bust the union. Um, you know, Biden had promised to, uh, to prevent such contracts from going to union busters. I guess my question is, how helpful has the Biden administration been? How helpful have allies in Congress been? Have they been mostly rhetorically helpful? Have they done more than just uh, say good things? And what are your expectations? Well, you know, I, I never relied on them anyway. You know, um, of course, they they haven't done much of anything. Um, you know, the, the the NLRB is still underfunded, still way understaffed. Um, the process is way too um, lopsided for workers. Um, as you know, we're in court right now with Amazon. It's being dragged out for weeks. Um you know, these are the issues that we're facing as workers trying to organize. And um, it hasn't changed. 
you know, the administration has uh, appointed Jennifer Abruzzo, who is trying to implement these remedies. But once again, these remedies take, you know, uh, take time. And we don't have that time because Amazon and other corporations like Starbucks, they're using that time against us every single day. They're firing us. They're um, targeting us. They're, you know, um, ignoring and breaking the law. You know, that's what they do. Um so I don't expect much from any administration. Um, I know that the work that we do, um, we have to do it ourselves, you know, as organizers, as the working class. The only thing, the only way we get things done in this country is is, is we have to force it upon the elected officials. You know, it's not the other way around. We can't expect them to just wake up one day and be like, hey, uh, let's pass the PRO Act. So, um you know, the conversation went as I expected, you know, when I met with them. And um, I just realized that, um, you know, this, there's nothing going to come from this White House, but but me holding them accountable. And, um, and and I hope they know that, that I'm I'm the wrong person because I do have a big mouthpiece right now. And, um, you know, if you promise me something and, and don't fall, uh, follow through, um, I'm definitely going to call you out as I've done in the past, you know, so... Um, I'm hoping that that's not going to be the case. I'm hoping um, something happens over the next course of the the year um, leading up into uh, 24. And, um, you know, we are, we know what we want to do on our end. You know, that's all that I can do is just uh, control what I can control. And we're going to continue to organize. No, that's great. We need more people calling out other people. That's we yeah. <laughs> that's extremely important right now. So. So along those same lines, so you guys just had this huge victory with the Warehouse Worker Protection Act uh, passing the New York uh, legislature, but uh, Governor Hochul hasn't signed it yet, uh, is my understanding. Um, ha- has her office reached out to you guys about, because we, I mean, we contacted her office and she said, you know, we'll let you know when we make a decision about whether or not to sign this this bill. And so, have has has she reached out to you? Where do things stand currently with this bill? Yeah, no, I haven't heard from her yet. Um, and, and honestly, I don't. You know, this is another thing. It's like you know, we we do things. Um, we we bring bills to their table, to their front doors, to their desks, and you know, they sit on it. They sit on their hands. We did all the work for them. You know, we we put the bill together. We sat with the union. We sat with Jessica Ramos several times. I went to Albany a few times. Um, and, and here we are. So once again, it's the same thing. You know, no matter if it's a local, federal, national, um, we don't get the justice that we need just immediately. We had to, like, continue to um, just organize to a point where they don't have nowhere to turn. And um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. You know, um, I'm waiting on Jessica to give me a command. Um, if she wants me to demonstrate off of that uh, on her not signing that bill, I'm more than happy to do so. Um, we already um, lost two of the other things that we actually was fighting for with the bill. We had three options that well, actually three things that demands that we wanted to have. And they only allowed us to in- include one of them. So it's not much that we're actually asking for. So it doesn't even make sense why she wouldn't sign it. You know, it's not like we're asking for a month. We're only asking for transparency when it comes to productivity rates, which is something that's already being implemented in other states like California. 
So, you know, for her to sit on it just doesn't make any sense. And um, I will absolutely call her out and do whatever is necessary to amplify that. Well, she just won her the primary yesterday, right? So now now's the time to apply that pressure. Chris, I want to ask uh, about a few weeks ago, Amazon fired one of your fellow union leaders, Pat Chofi, um, for allegedly arguing with a manager over the working conditions. But you and other organizers are calling this a retaliatory firing. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened? What where you guys are at? If if they're if it seems like like Pat's going to be able to find any recourse from this. Yeah. Um, so we had a press conference. What was it? Late April. Um, we had a, a press conference uh, regarding uh, our victory. And uh, Pat went public and said that uh, he, you know, he flipped. He was a supervisor like myself. Um, and he flipped, you know, 500 people. Um, so I guess Amazon... They targeted him from that moment forward when he went public on that press conference. You know, they were pretty much just targeting him, uh, doing little things, bringing him into the office. They suspended him before, um, suspended him with pay, suspended him without pay. They were just uh, pretty much just dragging him along until they tried to find something to fire him for. And that's exactly what this came down to. Uh, A manager, he had a conversation with a man, a manager who... You know, he has several interactions with every day and he put his hand on her shoulder as a friendly gesture uh, while they were talking. Somehow, some way that got twisted into some type of threat. And there we go. You know, Amazon ran with that. Um, So as far as we know, um, we're waiting on his appeals process with Amazon. and if that falls through, uh, we already filed our ULPs to get him back and reinstated, um, obviously, for retaliation. And, um, you know, this is another process that we have to wait on, unfortunately. But, you know, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that uh, he gets his job back or at least try to do so. And um, he's still with us. You know, he's going to organize um, just like no other. And uh, we we're, we're going to fight for him. Chris, I want to ask you a question. I'm sure some listeners are wondering about how to deal with Amazon in their own lives. Uh, And I I know a lot of listeners want to stand with you and with the union and what it's doing. And so I want to ask a a larger question here uh, to help folks think through how to stand in solidarity. Um, And the question really is, should people shop at Amazon? Should they use Amazon? And more broadly, is there a business model in the future where the Amazon labor union has organized workers, where Amazon is treating its workers with respect and dignity, uh, and shopping at Amazon, uh, using Amazon, isn't just helping or siding with Jeff Bezos and the people who are treating its workers like shit? In other words, is there a, way, a, a model in the future? Do you envision a model where there is an Amazon that is not so terrible for the world and that using Amazon isn't a way to harm workers. Absolutely. Um, there is a way, and though we proved that with our campaign, um, we changed the culture in that building. Um, hands down, you know, if you watch certain videos and clips and on our social media, our TikTok, um, the way we organize, the way we fed the workers every day, every week, 
barbecues, the events that we did, the demonstrations. We changed the culture of the building uh, so that workers were looking forward to coming to work and seeing us and interacting with us. And it, imagine if we did that at every warehouse where you change the culture to make it, um, you know, less strenuous, less stressful, um, you know, just a, a little bit of joy while going to work as a worker, as a warehouse worker. Um, if the culture changed in the warehouses, um, the working conditions change. You know, people take care of one another. Um, the injury rates go down um, because there's less productivity being pushed onto the workers. And we can change just little things like that. Uh, longer break times, better medical leave options. The things that we're demanding with our union, uh, $30 an hour. I know if you pay me well, I'm going to work well. Um, you know, these these are something that Amazon, these demands are something that Amazon can absolutely afford to do. Um, now, as a consumer, you know, uh, we can't call a boycott or strike or anything like that. But what we can do is ask for consumers to stand in solidarity with the workers that come from their community. You know, I'm your neighbor. You know, I, I live next door to you. Not Jeff Bezos, not the VPs of these companies, not the people that's in Seattle, not the techs that are making money. Um, it's the warehouse workers. We come, we commute two and a half, three hours each way from every borough in New York. We're the ones that are in your community. So stand in solidarity with us. Um, that means just spread our message, um, uplift our voices, uh, cancel your prime if that makes you feel better. Um, you know, just do little things like that. Show up to our demonstrations, uh, donate to our, uh, you know, GoFundMe, whatever it takes to stand in solidarity and you're, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with as a consumer, you know, that's what we ask. You know, other than that, um, you know, it takes, once again, it's going to take the organizers and the workers to organize themselves to change the culture of Amazon entirely. And if we get the ALU nationwide, which we're, um, ultimately trying to do, um, we will change the culture of Amazon as a whole. And, um, you know, it's going to take time, but, uh, you know, we already been contacted by every building in the country. And, um, you know, we're going to try our best to um, provide resources, help, advice, um, even get involved, get other buildings under our umbrella um, and collectively, you know, change the culture of Amazon. One thing I did want to just say that, you know, from before about the Hochul uh, discussion is, is we had an article uh, come out a couple of weeks ago, I'll make sure to send it your way, Chris, that shows that she could actually, you know, with, even without the legislature, she could raise wages for warehouse workers in New York State to $30 an hour, your demand, with the stroke of a pen, basically, yeah. you know, right now. And to me, that underscores just your point about how you know these Democrats need to be need to be pressured uh, by workers, um, but I, I also wanted to ask you about just kind of what are what are the next steps uh, for ALU? You know what what are what are, what's what plan are you guys thinking right now for for getting this contract done? Uh, and then also finally, if you have any additional thoughts about kind of what happened with the with the second uh, warehouse where you guys where you guys lost. Uh, yeah, you know, um, so we're in court every day, daily, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, it's not being talked about a lot. You know, that's a problem. Um, you know, this is a should be one of the most talked about campaigns in the country right now. Uh, court hearing, at least. 
You know, it, it should be everybody, every union, everybody that's a part of the labor movement uh, watching and tuning in every single day or at least as much as possible. Um, there shouldn't be less than 100 people on the call for one of the most historical victories in the country. Um, you know, that's number one. You know, we all got to you know, show solidarity and not just tweet about it. And as far as uh, what we have planned, uh, we want to, of, of course, win this court hearing so that we can be certified, have the company recognize us, which we know they're probably not going to do. So for us, we have to organize um, um, even 10 times harder right now. So right now what we're doing is we're just building up our infrastructure, uh, especially inside JFK right now, getting um, workers involved, keeping them engaged, informed. Um, Amazon is hiring at the location, so we want to make sure we're getting to the new hires. Just trying to keep the union alive in the building. Also, you know, branching out a little bit. You know, we got uh, interest in other warehouses. Um, I'm not going to mention them so that they don't union bust, but um, we already have uh, quite a few campaigns that are ready to go, are just about ready to go. So over the next uh, course of this month or a couple of weeks, you'll start to see more traction publicly about warehouses that are about to launch campaigns uh, to unionize. And, um, you know, as far as the reason why, um, you know, we lost the second uh, building, uh, number one, the organizers there were were not the JFK organizers. Uh, the JFK organizers that I organized with, uh, they've been Amazon workers for, for years, three, four, five, uh, Derek Palmer's on his sixth year. Uh, myself, if I was still there, this would be six years for me going on seven years. Our influence in that building was just way greater. LDJ5, just like Bessemer, Alabama, has been there only a year. So the influence in there is way different. Uh, it's a part-time building. So 80% of the workers there are part-time. It's not their main source of income. So there's a lot of intangibles people don't really know about. Um, uh, also, our organizers, not only being new to the company, they only been there less than less than a year. Some of them only six to eight months. They were new to the company and new to organizing completely. So like to try to get them to organize within a month time frame was way too soon. We just took a shot anyway. Uh, we thought that we had enough resources. Obviously, after we won the first campaign, here came here come Bernie, here come AOC, here come you know, the whole state of New York um, and everybody else. Here come all the money. So we had all the unlimited resources, but none of that mattered. It was just about the timing and the fact that we didn't have enough time in the building to really uh, reach all the workers. You know, Amazon was union busting. They spent millions of dollars. They were doing that in the same building at a smaller, a smaller location, which means that it was a higher density of union busting. The workers were isolated. Um, we're talking about a thousand workers, you know, compared to eight thousand. Um, they had a pl they had plenty of time to really, you know, drill propaganda into the workers. But we still learned from that. Um, even though we lost, we learned that four hundred and sixty workers voted yes. So they have a really strong union there. Either even so. Yeah, I mean, you know, with you between you guys and Starbucks, you know some of the biggest victories that I've wit I, I you know I worked in labor for a long time prior to coming back to journalism with David. Um, 
but you know both both you guys and Starbucks have had a lot of you know you know losses too and what it makes me think of is that unions shouldn't be afraid so much of losing you know if kind of if you're running more and more elections you're going to win some and you're going to lose some and that that to me is kind of the you know all the unions that I've worked with you know were totally we're way too afraid to lose uh, an NLRB election, in my opinion. And you guys in Starbucks have shown, look, if you're running elections, you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And on the whole, on <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, you're going to be doing better at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, once again, we took a shot. Um, you know, I didn't expect us to win. I didn't. Um, but you know what? Once again, the positive positive thing that we took away is that we now know that there's over 400 people in that building that that want a union. Um, it's not that far off. And um, we're still organizing. You know, we, we have a year to get back to it. And, um, you know, that gives us opportunity. So, you know, taking a shot is something that you have to do. Chris, my my last question. I'm I'm very, very curious about like your your politics, because you've you found yourself sort of at the center of this new American labor movement and and the way you speak is very labor focused it's you know almost like anti-capitalist politics and I'm 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 really curious how you arrived here like is this is this just stuff that you are figuring out on your own are you reading Karl Marx like like how, like how did you get to this place in your in your your thought process no I definitely um I learned every day you know I've been only been doing this work for two years you know it's not that long uh two and a half years and um i'm a fast learner um but i also always been a natural born leader my whole life um you know even working at amazon i was a leader there i opened up three buildings for them they didn't know who they fired you know i was so invested into the company that i could run a warehouse um anywhere um so for me being on this on this side playing for this team you know, um, being a leader in this movement, um, I, I learned from just just um, talking to different people, learn from. Of course, I have a, a whole bunch of books being sent to me every week. Um, I try to read as much as possible. Um, of course, I keep up on what's going on in the media and the news, especially with the left. Um, you know, things like that. I've been on picket lines and a part of different demonstrations across this country, whether it's environmental, social, social injustice, um, women's rights. You know, I'm always at, you know, trying to learn and be a part of all of these different movements, not just one and combine them. You know, I think that's important as well. You know, we're so divided by all these different issues. Um, if we could bring them all together, um, we can really have, you know, real, true people's power. And I've seen that. I've seen the power when people come together, especially with our campaign. You know, we're on Trump Island. You know, we're in Staten Island. You know, there's Trump flags everywhere. But to to beat Amazon, um, to not fall into that political argument and, and you know, oh, it's left or right. Uh, we don't we don't do that. We stick to the issues. We build off a of commonality. And I think most people you know, most people want to have better working conditions. Most people want to have higher wages. Most people want Medicare for all. Um, most people want their student debt canceled. That's just a no brainer for me because I'm a part of that. You know, I'm I'm living the same thing. I'm sitting here right now, even though I'm the um, the president of the Amazon Labor Union. Um, 
I'm still unemployed. You know, I don't get paid until we get a contract. So for me, this is all I have. You know, I have to put my all into it. Chris, I want to ask you one last question about uh, the larger labor movement. What do you think the larger labor movement can take away from ALU's initial success here? Um, and, and, and how does the national union strategy, whether at Amazon or anywhere else, need to evolve? What hasn't it been doing that you have done or that, that there are lessons to be gleaned from what you did? What hasn't been done in the past that needs to happen now for the larger labor movement? Well, for 28 years, Amazon was beating these um – you know, traditional campaigns, you know, that was the mistake that most uh, established unions was making was that they try to do it in secrecy. Um, they try to, you know, organize uh, with salts that didn't last. They spend millions of dollars thinking that if you match money, money matching money will, will ultimately uh, convince workers to, to organize. They tried all these different things that just uh, wasn't working. Um, what we did was uh, we we earned the trust. We used the principles that Amazon teaches and we flipped it on them. Uh, we earned the trust of the workers. We we built our own relationships. We um, we didn't make it about money. Um, we obviously didn't have any. Uh, we made it about real connections and um, the labor movement and established uh, unions can take away from us is that. Uh, you have to be real grassroots. You can't just, you know, advocate for it or say you support it. You have to really get involved, get in, get inside the warehouse. Um, you can't just hire a third party union and stand outside the building. Uh, we saw that with the campaign in uh, Alabama. Um, that that didn't work the first time around. You know, when I went down there and I noticed that, you know, the the uh, organizers were outside at the the traffic lights and um, I'm like, okay, cool. That's great. But where are the workers inside the building? Uh, where's your workers committee? Um, and then it, it didn't seem to happen. They didn't have any the first time around. So we took that and we said, we're not going to make that same mistake. We're going to make sure that the first thing we do is build a workers committee inside the building. And that's exactly what we did until we got to the point where once again, the workers start to organize themselves. Um, and I was at the bus stop on the outside. So it wasn't the army of us on the outside. It was me and a few people. And that's all we really needed was an inside-outside game. Um, the, labor, the labor movement as an, as an entirety, um, they got to make sure that we adapt into the 21st century. You know, that's what why you're seeing these Starbucks campaigns take off, because these are young kids, these are young adults um, doing this and, and leading the charge and what the the older generation, the um, you know, I, I kind of have this old school, new school method. You know, old school, the old school labor movement. And I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, that they don't count or they don't exist anymore, but they need to um, support the younger generation. They need to step back. They got to know when to play the position. They got to know when to take charge, know when to step back. And there's certain campaigns, like, for example, our campaign that people should get behind because this is the way of, of organizing from here on out. Yeah, there's no way going back. You know, we can't, obviously we can't take what we did in Staten Island and go to Alabama with it, but you can take certain things from our campaign and go to any warehouse with it. You know, the things that we did in our campaign, 
you can use in any bit in any building in the country. Um, so there's certain things that the older established unions need to learn. Um, they got to make TikTok. They got to get on social media. Um, they got to get involved with the younger adults. They can't just rely on politics. They can't get in bed with these Democrats who are claiming that they stand in solidarity with the labor movement. They got to get away from all of that traditional stuff that they're used to doing and focus on the issues in the warehouse and the commonality that the workers have. Chris, in an ocean of like bad news every single day, every single week, I swear, I, I, more than more than one person, many people have have said something to the effect of what you're doing, what the labor movement's doing, is the one shining light of hope in 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 this dark moment right now. So, thank you so much for your work. Truly, please let us know how we can help uh, support it, amplify it, and the like. Uh, and thanks for taking time with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. You know, this is going to help a lot. You know, you guys uh, supporting us and amplifying this. So, uh, yeah, we got a lot of work to do together. Good luck with it, man. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Okay, that's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear our bonus segment of the worst liberal takes of all time. I think the the RBG take was was more dangerous uh, because it ended up being what happened. And, you know, Kavanaugh was probably going to be confirmed with or without the support of liberals. But I do feel a bit more annoyed by the Kavanaugh take um, because I just don't get why liberals keep feeling the need to to provide cover for their enemies. Like, like, who does that? Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our exclusive live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write up a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. Oh, wow.